We are so excited for you to hear part two of our conversation with Dr. William Stixrud and Ned Johnson, who are the co-authors of The Self-Driven Child. In this second part of our conversation, we dig further into self-determination theory. We discuss the parenting shift from helping kids feel safe to helping them learn to be brave. And we talk about figuring out who is responsible for what and how to offer and not force help or our experience on learners. And crucially, why giving control to kids to make decisions is essential in helping them learn to solve their own problems. Like we said, this is the second part of our conversation. So if you haven't heard episode 159, it's linked in the show notes and we strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the first part. They are entertaining, lovely, supportive of one another. And you know how Steph and I love listening to other people who partner in such a wonderful way. So go back and listen to episode 159 and let's dig into 161. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 161 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we're excited to have our continued conversation with Ned Johnson and Dr. Bill Stixrud about motivation and the self-driven child and how do we motivate them. And if you haven't listened to the first part of the episode, go back and listen to episode 159. Let's continue. Go ahead, Steph. So you were talking about end of the last episode. Can you just remind us quickly why control is so important? To be intrinsically motivated, you need three things. You need competency, you need relatedness, and you need autonomy. And that autonomy piece is probably the most important one, that without feeling like this is your life, you're not going to have inner drive. You'll do things, but you won't do them because you want to do them. And also, as Bill talked before in the last episode, a lack of sense of control may be the most stressful thing in the universe. And so if we want our kids to have stress tolerance, we want them to feel a sense of control. And there we go, a sense of control. Now, It's important for them to have control, but parents also feel, you know, the term, the lawnmower parent, Uh (laughs) they have to like mow the grass before the kid gets there so that it's such an easy road. And so they don't have to worry about control and Mm. Smokey the Bear, you too can prevent forest fires type thing. But that actually is really harmful because then the kid doesn't learn how to navigate and actually have the control and learn how to manage it. Right. So Let's talk about how hard it is for the parents to give up that control. Part of it is because we're mammals, we're wired to protect our young and to soothe our young when distressed. It's built in. I was interviewed a couple of years ago by some of the Netherlands who said in the Netherlands, they call it curling parents. You know, the Olympic sport curling, oh, they sweep yeah. the ice out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> we're wired to soothe our young and to protect them from danger. It's built into our DNA. When they're babies, we have to do that because they can't protect themselves. As they get older, if we want them to be able to have the confidence that they can manage difficult situations, they have to have the experience in being able to manage difficult situations. We don't want kids to be unnecessarily stressed. It's not like life is hard enough. It's not like we have to create kind of obstacle courses for them, you know, Mm -hmm. but we don't want to try to protect them from every stress because that's how really they develop the confidence and the tools for handling stressful situations. But it's hard, in part because we're wired in this way, and in part because if we give up control, 
We have to experience a low sense of control, which is the most stressful thing in the universe. It was sitting on your hands and zipping your lip and watching your kids. <laughs> Good luck. It's not an easy thing to do. There's a story in the book. There's a wonderful movie called Miss Peregrine's School for Peculiar Children or something like this. And at the very end of it, one of the protagonists sort of tearfully says to the other, say, I'm so sorry, I wasn't able to protect you. And she looks back at him and she said, that's okay. You did something so much more important. You made us feel brave. Mm. And in the perfect world, that's what we do with our kids. We want them to feel safe when they are helpless. You know, they're infants or they're toddlers that we're keeping them safe. But the reality is, particularly once our kids become teenagers, go out in the world. I mean, Bill and I can say to every group of parents that we ever worked with, that nothing profoundly bad will ever happen to any of your children. Nothing will ever befall them. That would be the best message we could possibly give. But we all know that's not true. And I can't say that. So what we really want to do is have our thinking, how do we help them develop the tools to protect themselves? And you're back to the sword and the shield. And when things go, bah, they have the ability to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and say, that was hard, but I was able to handle it. So how do we teach the parents to let go? The kind of metaphor that we use, we suggest that parents think of themselves especially as kids get older, as more of a consultant to their kid and as their boss or their manager. The title of the second chapter of our book is I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. You tell your kid that I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And then you say, I'm willing to do whatever I can to help you. I'm willing to to be your homework consultant. I'm willing to sit with you from 6.30 to 7.30 every night. I'm willing to help you figure out how to schedule your work or help you with math if I can. I'll try to get you a tutor if you need it, but I'm not willing to fight with you all the time and fighting about the same thing over and over again is just completely toxic for your relationship. I'm not willing to act like it's my responsibility to get your work done. I couldn't make you do it. If I tried to make you do your work, all you'd have to do is flop to the floor. I I couldn't make you do it. And I don't want to take responsibility for something that's yours. So part of what we ask people to do is just think about their relationship differently. It's not that they're not the manager, they're not the boss, they're not the homework police, because the child's responsibility. And we want to be really clear about who's responsible for what. That's really one of the bottom lines for me is being really clear about this is your work. I'm willing to help, but I'm not willing to weaken you. Parents understand, if I take responsibility for something with my kids, I'm going to weaken the kid. And most parents don't want to do that. Part of what we're asked to do is get the rationale. You can't make somebody do something against their will. So give up trying to. And don't take responsibility for something that's your kids because you're going to weaken it. But part of it is making the rationale. We also have suggestions for how to deal with the stress, especially the second book, how to deal with the stress of that low sense of control that you experience. Dad, tell them about the Borelli study. Oh, yeah, this is wonderful. So <laughs> this actually the screenagers in the next chapter. We make a cameo for about a three point, maybe two seconds in there and immediately followed up by a wonderful researcher, Jesse Borelli, who's a guru, a researcher on parental over-control. And so she sets up this experiment where there are teens or 12, 13, whatever they are, doing a digital puzzle, moving pieces on a computer screen. And they have parents there. In this case, I think they're all moms who are there kind of for moral support, you know, encouraging the kids, but their only instruction is don't give instructions. Don't twist it this way or move that way, whatever. And the puzzle looks really simple, but it turns out it's not. So it's designed to frustrate the kids. And then the experiment is like, well, let's see what happens. Now, the really fun part is they have a heart rate monitor on both the kid and the parent. And so as the kids get frustrated, their heart rates goes up. Mm -hmm. And as their kids get distressed, so does moms. 
because it's hard, as Bill said, to watch our kids struggle. And eventually, every single one of these moms, they kind of lose it, right? There's only one rule and they break it. The sweetheart, go over there, but on the left, turn over there because they want to help. They're wired to want to help their kids. And as they do that, because they now feel a sense of control, their stress goes down Ha! Huh. as their kids goes up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's hard, right? And there's another piece to this, and this for both of you really applies to your work in that when we see people struggle, whether it's our kids or our partners or spouses or colleagues, friends, whatever, and they bring a problem to us, we have what's called a writing reflex. We want to make it right. We want to be problem solvers. We want to put on our cape and, whoa, thank God for now, you saved it, and jump in and do this. But when we do that, we again deprive people of the opportunity to solve things for themselves. And it often increases their stress because a lot of times people aren't bringing problems to us because they want us to solve them. They want us just to understand this is really frustrating. Ned is so hard to work with. I, whatever, whatever, whatever. And so there's a whole chapter in our book about just empathy and just saying, that seems really hard. And so one of the things with kids, if we want to be consultative rather than managerial and avoid over-parenting, you would say, that's really hard. Do you have a plan for that? Or what's your plan for that? And we get kids to start thinking of and perfect world pivot from what's the problem to what's the solution and resist the temptation to start giving kids the solution in part because we have all had the experience of have people bring a problem to us and we start making suggestions and they start telling us why that won't work. And part of it is that we are all ambivalent about change. If I'm failing a class and I'm coming and say, it's no good. And Mr. Johnson, he used to use, that was so unfair and blah, blah, blah. Well, did you try this? Did you try that? The person leans on the other side of all the reasons why that's too hard, right? And they start arguing the other side. And we just want to avoid taking that bait. And we do that by asking questions rather than offering solutions, at least solutions that we've not been given permission to offer. I was lecturing about our book in New York about three years ago, as soon as the book came out, and making the point that there's four implications of this idea of thinking about yourself as a consultant. One is that we want to offer help to kids, not try to force it down their throat. We want to offer our wisdom and our problem-solving skills and our experience, but not try to force it on kids. And also we want kids to make decisions for themselves as much as possible and want them to solve their own problems. And I was talking about this idea of not trying to force our experience or our wisdom down kids' throats and kind of recognizing that this idea of ambivalence that never mentioned. And a woman in the audience in the front row, she turned to the rest of the audience and said, this idea has transformed my relationship with my child, with my 15-year-old daughter. I was reading the book and she's in a boarding school. We talk three or four times a week on the phone and every time she brings up a problem, I said, well, you should do this or this. And then she fights back and it just turns into an argument. So I, I read in the book, I decided not to force it. She brought up a problem. And I said, is there a way that I could help? And the energy changed completely. Then it was fun that we could brainstorm back and forth. I wasn't trying to lay stuff on her. I wasn't trying to solve it for her. And ever since then, I just asked, can I be a support to you in some way? As opposed to you need to do this, you need to do this. And what we find continually is when we change the energy in this kind of skillful way and we don't try to force, it just works. And it works so much better. The woman in Seattle who helped with some of the writing of our books was just saying this idea of not trying to force. One of the things that we tell kids is that I can't make you do this. Advise parents to recognize to your kids, I can't make you do this. Because if we feel like we're trying to force, we want to say there's something wrong with this picture because I couldn't really actually make him do it. 
And it sounds like we're giving up all our power, but it's actually very empowering to recognize that. But this woman out in Seattle was saying, I just use this with my 75-year-old mother who was very terrified to have this kind of medical examination. She's coaching her father to, to tell her, nobody's going to make you do this. And just telling her, nobody's going to make her do it. Then she's all on board when she didn't feel forced. We find this with kids all the time that we get kids to cooperate with us when we say, nobody's going to force you. And part of it is that then allows them to play the pros and cons. I mean, I have a daughter who is brilliant. She's got 20, at least 20 IQ points on me, but she's also really stubborn, right? There is no forcing her to do things. It's just, that's not a winning play. And for years I've used that. It's your call. You know, I can't force you. And when we say that it's your call and force has been taken off the table, it calms down the stress response, brings down the shields, and makes it much more likely that we're now engaging prefrontal cortex to prefrontal cortex. And so whatever advice or ideas I think are good ones, I have a chance of being heard. Exactly as Bill said, it feels like we're giving up and it ends up kind of being like a Jedi mind trick or some kind of you know, emotional or mental jujitsu. It's so much more effective by using kind of the power of no force as we describe it in, the, in our second book. I tested a kid whose mother had called me some months earlier, asked, will you talk my kid into taking Ritalin <laughs> medication for his ADHD? He was diagnosed in second grade. He's refused for the last six years. He's in eighth grade. He's in a Catholic school. He's applying out to Catholic high schools. He's got all C's. He's a really smart kid. He's really underachieving. And the pediatrician met with him a year ago, gave him a come to Jesus meeting about, you got to take this medicine. The kid said, make me. And I said, I don't believe in making kids do stuff, but I'll talk to him about it. I'm not going to try to talk him into it, but I'll talk to him about it. The first thing I say is, I don't want anybody to try to make you take this medication. And I actually said, if somebody tries to make you, I'll put it in your cheek, you just kind of practice a couple of times swallowing, and then go spit it out. I don't want anybody to make you take this. But you're smart enough to make an informed decision. And I'd like you to make an informed decision, meaning try the medicine, see what it does, and then decide whether to use it. If it doesn't help you, you aren't going to use it. If the bad side effects, you aren't going to use it. If it helps you 10%, it's not worth it. But if you're one of these people who's like turning on a light switch, you can decide to use it or not. He started medicine a couple of days later, and the mother called me like two months later and said he's got all AIDS. It's not usually that dramatic a turnaround. No. But my point is simply that six years, people have tried to force him, to coerce him into taking medicine, and he'd refuse. All I had to do is say, no, I don't want anybody to force you. He didn't want to fail. He wanted to get into a better high school. I wanted to side with that part of him that wanted his life to work. I love that story. It's always about aligning. And that's such a common... That's what we talk to our team members about too. It's like, who are you aligning with in this situation? I love that. And it it's so important yeah. and critical mm-hmm. to, to align yourself with the learner. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not listened to. The idea of working with your kids, not on your kids. You know, we talked in the last episode yeah. about... <laughs> But, you know, whom you marry matters so much more than where you go to college. And there's a beautiful line out of a song, and both shall row, my love and I. And just simply the idea that if you're rowing in the same direction, it's much better than going the opposite, in which case you just get dizzy and blisters and angry with the person who's also pulling hard. I went to a school meeting, another eighth grader who is applying out to high school and he's getting C's and D's. I just tested him and he had ADHD and language disorder and learning disabilities. And school is really hard for him. And I go to this meeting and one of the learning specialists says it takes two learning specialists and a tutor and the mom on top of the kid all the time in order to get him to do any work. And I said, stop immediately. If you're spending 90 units of energy trying to get him to work, he'll spend 10. And if you go up to 95, he'll spend five. 
and let him know you're willing to help him in any way, but don't work harder than he does. Yep. And tell him, if I work harder than you, I'm going to weaken you and I love you and I don't want to weaken you. I'll match your energy. I'll work as hard as I can, but I'm not going to work harder than you. And I called this mother a year and a half later. And she said, he really kind of, he started to figure it out at eighth grade. He actually got into a Catholic high school with a really good LD support program. Mm. And he's nailing it as a ninth grader. And he actually mm. played football in ninth grade. That helps too. At the end of ninth grade, he was so self-driven. He says, I think I need to play a sport next year that's not so time consuming because I want to continue to do well in school. Wow. I think I need a different kind of balance. You know, this stuff works. It's just hard. It's just emotionally hard. hard, but empowering. Completely. We, like you, we just want parents to be effective, you know, in helping their kids be successful. And it's just a different set of tools to get the outcome. Again, all the parents who are listening want their kids to do well and to be well and to be happy. And we want the same thing for them. This is just an approach that's not always obvious to some people and happily for our side is, is really backed up by science. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been fabulous and I've learned so much and I hope that our audience is really taken away either if you are a parent, how to help your child, or if you're someone who works with a learner, how to help other parents help their children. And the book is The Self-Driven Child. You can get it on all the things. We'll link it in the show notes. But if our audience wants to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Go right to our website, theselfdrivenchild.com. Perfect. I'll mention too that our second book, which is called What Do You Say? Talking with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home is coming out in August and people can pre-order it on Amazon or their local bookstore. Yeah. We're pretty excited about the stuff in there. They're just It kind of builds on the first book. There's a lot of language in it you can use that can build this kind of self-driven child. Mm. I love it. I can't wait to read it. And you guys will come back on the podcast, hopefully, to talk about that book when it comes out. Love to do it. Got it. Yay. Awesome. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Will you say have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week, Smarties. (laughs) 